Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. everybody. We are two moms, no fluff. Alma Schneider, my friend is here and my colleague and I'm Iris Meller. We are ready to introduce another episode which we hope that you'll learn something new and enjoy uh, listening to us because we have some, I guess, similar experiences to our listeners as moms of kids with disabilities. Alma, yes. you want to introduce the topic? Of course I would. Today we are going to be talking about hiring people who are in our children's uh, network. Okay, so I'm going to have Iris, I think. I think I'm going to pass the baton to you because you do a lot more hiring than I do, although I do do some hiring. Yes. Um, <laughs> Alma, so as you know, uh, it takes a village to raise, raise a, a typical child, and it takes mm-hmm. probably more than a village to raise our children. This is a task that requires a lot of helping hands. And mm-hmm. I keep saying that my husband and I could not have done it on our own. I think if we have listeners that are single parents, they probably need even more support and help. And at the end of the day, most of the wonderful gains and achievements that um, we had in our uh, daughter's life is a result of the other people that uh, came along on this journey and helped us out. So mm-hmm. I, um, I definitely think that uh, hiring people uh, might be a really daunting concept for some parents. And because I had this notion of like homeschooling and unschooling my kids and uh, me being the kind of uh, main caregiver and I won't need any help and then realizing that I cannot do it all by myself and I do need help. Uh, was a, a big transition in thought and uh, acceptance of the situation. But uh, once I did uh, I, I did ask for help and I started really um, hiring people, and I want to mention that uh, hiring people, I don't mean uh, necessarily directly paying them myself, but uh, sometimes when you get the help from the, the state or the, um, I guess, uh, social services or private insurance, whatever it is that... Uh, helps you with raising your kid, uh, they, they pay for the service, but you need to choose your uh, help. So in that uh, situation, you have, uh, I guess, hopefully a, a pool of people or a few candidates and you need to uh, choose the best fit for yourself and for your child and the family as a whole. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. There's a lot, there is a lot. And um, we all come to parenting with our own history and i think that on this particular episode it's it's really relevant for me to talk about the fact that i never had babysitters growing up that i'm one of seven kids we never had babysitters and my parents never seemed to go out and if they did i guess we were alone that was when we were older but um, we never had babysitters and even with the two children I had before Lincoln who had the disability, 
Um, when I had my daughter, I didn't get any babysitter. I never hired a babysitter until she was close to one year old. I never had any help um, because to me, in my family, it was sort of looked down upon. I was like, you're not working. Like, you don't have a job. And nobody ever said that to me, to be honest. But that was just sort of like, why would you get a babysitter when you don't work and you have one child? So it was something that was, um, I had some shame involved in, in even getting a babysitter. And I really only got a babysitter for my first kid, who was typical when 9-11 happened. And I wanted to go volunteer as a social worker for the um, victim's kids in the armory in New York City. That is what allowed me to feel comfortable hiring a babysitter and having them spend some time with my daughter and it was it was not it wasn't easy because I you know she had never been with a stranger before so by herself so it's really important that we acknowledge how we feel about receiving help and we've talked about this in other episodes not only receiving help but receiving help when we're in the situation with a child with a disability and a lot of the respite care that we may be getting or or um babysitters we we um might have even more uh feelings about it because our kid might might be challenging for that person and that can bring up feelings as well so i think it's really important to acknowledge that identify it and address it because it can cause a lot of stress um with the babysitter, with the the caregiver, with the therapists that are involved in your child's life, if we're not kind of noting where our um, what the you know soft spots are, where we might get upset, or we might feel bad about ourselves, or we might have resentment towards our child if they're not behaving properly with the person who's who's with them. So that being said, um, that was really. Um, I had, I mentioned in other episodes, we had a wonderful babysitter who was willing to help feed Lincoln with his feeding tube that I was very self-conscious about because I didn't, I felt like it was too much for them to deal with. And this was not a babysitter that dealt with kids with disabilities, but she did it and she was wonderful. And I felt very fortunate fortunate to have had her. Um, As my son got older and his behaviors became more challenging and we really had to know that somebody was going to be uh, keeping him very safe. Um, it was a little harder. It was very hard to hire someone because we didn't want to spend a fortune on getting a professional babysitter. And even a bigger issue than that was we didn't want a stranger in the house. We, you know, we were used to having babysitters for our other kids when we went out at night to, to, um, that knew our family and lived in our community and they were high school students and they, you know, it was a fraction of the price of getting a professional person. We were concerned um, and we were very fortunate that we had some lovely next door neighbors who were willing to babysit. And fortunately, Lincoln would fall asleep early so they didn't have to deal too much with him. Um, But we had to have serious discussions with them about the fact that the, that the, um, kitchen doors had to be locked. We felt self-conscious that they weren't allowed to go in our kitchen. You know, a lot of babysitters, if they get hungry, they'll come go in the fridge and they'll take something. We literally said like, this door is going to be locked. You can't go in there. And it's, you know, we had our own, I I don't know about anybody else. If my husband felt this way, but I was felt very self-conscious that they could, they had to go upstairs to the bathroom. They couldn't use the downstairs bathroom because it was through the kitchen. So hiring people can bring up 
a lot of emotions. Um, if somebody, fortunately, we never had this with our younger babysitters, but when we had older babysitters through the state who were respite workers, um, we felt uncomfortable because it was free for us. We sort of, and I think a lot of people feel this way when they get um, benefits from the state for respite care or for babysitting, we don't feel as comfortable um, calling them on things that you know, if we were paying someone or out of pocket, or if we just from our own nature, it's uncomfortable to say, you know, you're not doing this in a way that I'm comfortable with any kind of a, you know, quote unquote confrontation can be awkward, but um, it can be even more awkward sometimes when you have a child with a disability or less awkward because it's so straightforward because it's a life and death issue. But one example is we've had respite workers. Um, and again, we don't we didn't choose the respite workers. We had a choice to not have them if we didn't want to. But we didn't have like a pool of people that we were choosing from. We were sent. We were given um, a survey. We had to fill it out to talk about Lincoln's behaviors and his needs and um, his triggers. And um, we had some great people, but some of the people would cancel at the last minute or they would, um, you know, just say, oh, I'm not feeling so great, so I'm not gonna come or I'm really tired, so I'm not gonna come. And, you know, had that been someone that we had personally hired, we would have been like, you know, to, to say that to your employer is not really it's not cool and it's not cool either if you're if you're paid by the state but we you know i had some awkwardness because it felt like a bonus for us to get the respite care which is very different from you know somebody like you iris who you really depend on that for for a lot of reasons um to have that care for us it was like you know respite which is necessary but you know we would count on it we would say this person is coming for three hours for this day and we're going to take advantage of that time while she takes Lincoln out. And then she would cancel and we, would, we wouldn't be able to do what we were going to do. And um, it, it was tough because unfortunately the, the pay is very low for people, um, you know, depending on what state you live in. And it's usually an additional job. Um, oftentimes people are paraprofessionals and this is an extra job for them. Um, on the weekends or after school, and they may not need the money as much, so they don't take it as seriously. And that's, I think, an ongoing issue for a lot of people who have this respite care from the state, that it's not, um, you know, a lot of the people just don't, don't take, a lot of people take it very seriously and they're very committed and dedicated, but some people are not. And I think that that's just how it is in the real world anyway, but it's, very hard when you have a child who, and a lot of people who have children with disabilities can are going to be able to relate to this, who do not like change. And if you get notice at the last second that somebody is not coming and your child was excited to go on a hike with them, which was planned, or go to the movies, or just go out into the community, it can be upsetting. So not only were we not getting our respite care, we were then left with a child who was very upset, you know, disappointed. Um, possibly tantruming, but also feeling like their self-esteem, you know, could could be affected by this. Like, why why do they always do this? Like, they never, you know, why don't they tell us, you know, why are they not coming? And it affects a child. And you know, I know you have more to say about that, Iris, because you you know you have a lot more workers in your in your life. So I'll I'll let you speak to that. But that's something that we've experienced. Um, yes. 
once in a while. Uh, Alma, this is where I think uh, things are very, very delicate because uh, the people that we hire uh, have a relationship that is very intimate and special with our children and our children get emotionally attached for them. That person is a friend. It's not like a, uh, you know, care provider. And uh -huh. when they uh, when they have someone that they liked suddenly leave because they found a better paying job or uh, someone who doesn't show up for a shift that they were really expecting to play such and such game or do such and such activity, the, the hurt is so, so bad that we, we can't compensate for that. The only uh -huh. thing that we can do is to make our best effort in uh, the situations that we do have control over choosing who would come into our lives and to try to eliminate and decrease the probability that something like that happens. Even with that, things do happen. I have to admit that uh, I didn't find yet a fail-proof method. But uh, I want to, before I go to maybe more details about uh, how to interview someone and how to find the best match for your family, to uh, go back to that, uh, I think, dilemma of hiring someone, bringing someone into your life, being terrified that you can't leave your child with the complex disability in the hands of someone else and to uh, maybe suggest something that was the in-between method that we uh, decided to do at the beginning. And that was because I was so terrified because Karen could easily choke while eating and she uh, had, you know, so, so many things that could, could go wrong that I was really afraid of uh, having someone else at the house. But I, uh, again, you know me with my list, I made a list of the activities that are very simple to do with her, that she really enjoys back then she was a toddler, that other people can do with her while I'm there, maybe in the room, or while they're on the carpet, you know, in the living room while I'm in the open uh, kitchen. Mm -hmm. half looking at them and seeing what they're doing uh, with her. So I would relieve myself from physically handling her, holding her, uh, supporting her, holding a toy for her, doing uh, things that uh, any other person can do. But I was still there in the room, either working on my computer or uh, cooking while they were playing, etc. And then I it helped me maximize my time but i had sometimes months of observing a person with her and through that both karen's confidence in the caregiver increased and my confidence in them and how they resolved kind of difficult situations how they physically handled her body and how they dealt with you know questions and uh, communication challenges so this is a method that I really recommend. Uh, this is worth anything, uh, you know, um, beyond an interview because an interview is a snippet of time. And some people really do know how to interview very well, but do they have the perseverance and the uh, moral standards to stick with it for the long run? Not always. And it's hard to always know that on basis of a one hour conversation. So mm -hmm. that's my recommendation. And I want to also uh, say something kind of um, additional is that in a situation that you do need help and um, you cannot afford it and you're still not getting uh, services paid for by insurance or the state or an agency that is uh, helping uh, with the care for children with uh, disabilities, 
I uh, want to recommend and people who might like uh, their ears would burn using a teenager as a mother's helper and mm -hmm. taking someone who's completely unqualified, but teaching them the basics, the things that are very, very easy to do, including maybe just snuggling on the sofa with your child and they read books out loud, uh, lying on the carpet and holding a toy above your child's head whatever it is that might be appropriate uh, for your child um, that any person can do and then a the cost is is minimal and b uh, you are still there in the room with them so the risk level is very little because you're constantly there so that's that now when it comes to hiring or alma mm. what did you want to say no i was just going to say that uh, that we've done that quite a few times having a young person come and just hang out and they can be outside and like you said you know you can be nearby but just it's great for the um for a young kid who wants to make a little bit of money and some of the best people that i've had who understood lincoln the best and where he didn't get upset were these young people who who were not trained, they had never done this before, but they were just nice people. And, you know, your daughter requires more physical, um, you know, um, care at this point in time, but as a baby, as a young kid um, who is able to to get around um, and doesn't require all the, the medical type care, it is, um, it is, it just don't dismiss that um at getting young kids even like a fourth grader you know depending on the age of your child or a middle schooler or a high schooler that can can be very very inexpensive and they could also do it sometimes it's for credit for school or they are doing it as a volunteer there are all different ways to get some some help but that doesn't mean that you can't say no to them you know if they're if you feel that there's any issue at all where you just even if your gut says this i don't this doesn't feel right to me it doesn't feel comfortable then you know you need to put your child's safety first and your child and your, your your all of your comfort level yes and uh, it's uh, again never underestimated the power of a willing child because uh, mm -hmm. sometimes the best uh, I guess uh, funnest ideas come from children and I remember when Karen was a uh, um, you know, two years old, we had the neighbors, uh, children that they would come over and play uh, with my daughter. And uh, one of the kids, uh, the little boy was back then seven and he used to kind of like, uh, Karen would lie on the carpet and he used to jump around like, <laughs> like a frog around here. Uh, required a lot of energy that none of the adults around would have. But that made her so excited that I don't think there was any other opportunity in her life that she was so physically active, you know, next to him on the floor, lying on her back. But still, yeah. it was just a, an incredible thing that none of the adults around could, uh, you know, create. So don't uh, underestimate the power of childhood. And uh, back to like uh, interviewing adults and uh, hiring people to do more uh, sophisticated tasks. So for example, for us, uh, a night uh, shift is, is a bit of a challenge because uh, in the middle of the night, if uh, my daughter needs anything, you can't bring her eye gaze communication device and put it in front of her because for her to activate it, there is like a really bright light shining from the screen and it needs to kind of, uh, the laser pointers are reading the retina movement and, and you can't do it to a sleeping person. The person who stays with her during the night needs to be um, 
I guess, fluent enough in her eye gaze communication method that they can understand her and help her without needing the screen to be uh, in front of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that takes uh, months to to get to, you know, sometimes that level of understanding. And, and it takes a, a, a special person to be gentle enough to help uh, handle uh, pain and manipulation, like physical manipulations during the mm-hmm. night without breaking an arm or, or a leg or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, when I interview people for uh, AIDS position uh, with my daughter, I uh, try to do three things. One is to be as forward as possible about what the job entails and to give as many details about it as I possibly can. And, uh, and that that's important because then you're saving yourself a person kind of, oh, I didn't want know that this is a part of my uh, kind of job description. And then they change their mind and leave. But by then it's a, li- a little too late because you already exposed them to your child. Your child was exposed to them. Your child might like them and then they never show up again. So you try to lay down the kind of description of the position and all your expectations ahead of time. Now, sometimes when you're hiring first time, this is really hard to do because you are not sure yourself like what the position might look like. You're mm-hmm. hiring for the first time. So I would recommend saying that, uh, explaining that in the uh, interview and saying that the person who would be hired would be helping you kind of discover what would be the uh, sc- scope of this position and what they can help you with. Um, and then I would describe also your goals for the position for yourself that you expect to be working, let's say, in the other room uninterrupted for the entire four hours that they are there, for example. Uh, and then the person knows that they'll need to be independent. Or on the other hand, if you're hiring someone as a mother's helper, you're like, I'll be here next to you and I'll be able to help you with anything you need. Uh, I mm-hmm. just want her to be, let's say, happy and playful. Uh, so that that would be a good uh, thing to do. Then I, I explain the kind of emotional attachment that would uh, probably happen on the side of my child. And before I even hire someone, I tell them that this is not a position in which they can like uh, uh, call us one day and say, hi, I found a better position in McDonald's. They pay $15 an hour now, so ciao. Uh, there is a child here and the child would be emotionally attached to them. So for them to be able to kind of quit or leave or whatever, we need to uh, ahead of time agree on a strategy, which includes them helping us find, let's say, a replacement and phasing themselves out slowly by first training the other person. And then maybe if their shift was four hours, uh, after a few times that they shadow um, you know the new person or this new person shadowed them then they are there only for three hours of the shift two hours of the shift only two shifts a week and then one shift a week and not there at all and this is very important to do at the beginning so there's no surprises when the person needs to leave they already know that this should be a gradual process and then it's a little bit less traumatic for your child when an aide leaves I want to say that uh, we try, at least in our family, to stay in good uh, uh, relationship with all of the aides that work here, because for us, uh, this is our daughter's social circle. 
And we want these people to stay like friends for life for her and for our family. And it's it's important for us to, to get to know them very well. So in an interview, I would really, really try and get to know the person you're interviewing very well in terms of also their belief systems, the things that are important to them. So I know beyond the technical ability, I can lift 40 pounds, I can be there on time, etc. who mm -hmm. this person is and what is their kind of moral standards, what it is that they, um, they think about like dealing with frustration or handling uh, ambiguous situations, etc. And I think that would really help you find the people that are right for the job because um, our, our children sometimes are very good at pressing <laughs> buttons for okay. adults and children alike. So we need someone who can really have the emotional stamina to persevere, someone who can stay positive even in a stressful situation, and someone who's extremely patient and able to kind of um, stand through challenges with your child and not kind of uh, eliminate away. them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a real, you know, it's funny, it's it, one of the reservations I always have about getting someone to stay with Lincoln is um, that they will, I'm worried about them. <laughs> I'm worried about the caretakers. Um, I'm worried that they will feel overwhelmed, that they will be freaked out by, you know, if he explodes, if he really escalates and you know his behavior and uh fortunately that's only happened once um with a caretaker but we tried to avoid those types of situations by you know like what you're saying having really clear communication um about the on in our you know we don't talk about the phasing out part we, we talk more about what could happen if there is a trigger so to avoid triggers for him at all costs and i try to be as clear as possible and to talk about the minutiae of what you know could trigger him um, and usually that works and if they are you know more professional people or even younger people they will um, who are inexperienced they will be able to get that um, sometimes those types of you know triggers are out of their control and he and he has escalated um, but it's it's very rare to find a person who won't take that personally because you know, people who have his syndrome can, you know, lash out and say some terrible things if when once they're in that cycle that um, they, you know, he when he was younger, he would get physical with staff at school. Um, it's never happened with a caretaker because, um, you know, it's it's the one on one is easier for him. But it's really it, I think it's important to note that for us as the parents, it can be, it's, I'm just going to say it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It can be shameful. Um, you know, our kids, we can't help but feel that they're an extension of ourselves. They are, are um, you know, and their behavior sometimes can be really mortifying. So I always worry about the caretakers that Lincoln will, you know, possibly could say something to them that might be um, offensive or upsetting or too personal or, you know, too private for them to, to, to they won't know how to respond. So I get very uncomfortable about that. 
Um, but, you know, I explained that in the beginning, you know, please don't take it personally. If this, God forbid, this actually does happen, you know, this is, this just, I tell them how to deal with it if it happens. And again, fortunately, it's only happened one time, um, with a caretaker in all these years, but it was, uh, it was bad. It was ugly. And, um, you know, she did come back. I was shocked she was willing to come back and she did and I really um you know I think it's really important to to acknowledge the people in your world who are working with your kids you know they're doing a really important job and to respect them as much as possible and to celebrate their birthday you know if you know that something's coming up obviously to if they are sick or if they're you know to to be kind about it if it's happening a lot you know that might be something to talk about because it is important for continuity for our kids to have you know have that person show up when they say they're going to show up um, i'm reminded of you know this wasn't someone that i hired but it was someone hired by the school who was lincoln's um aide in class i think he was in uh first first or i think it was first grade and the aide was absent all the time and it was those absences where it's like on a Friday or a Monday. So it looked a little suspicious, like they were taking long weekends. And the um, after many, many absences that caused many problems for Lincoln because he didn't have that structure and that continuity and he was young, he would have tantrums in school and he would get anxious because other people would then have to deal with him or a sub and they didn't know how to deal with him and he would get triggered. So there were so many problems every time his aide was absent. So his aide was absent many, many times and ended up quitting from the school. And I asked the school if I, I felt like this was a form, we've, we've talked about activism in other episodes. This to me was a form of activism where I wrote the aide a letter and I gave it to the school who was still dealing with him on his he wasn't dismissed, but on his departure from the school. And I wrote a letter to him and I wrote it from the perspective of the parent myself. And I said, I'm not sure you're aware of, you know, the trauma that is caused by your absences and your, he didn't give any notice. That was another thing. That's why it was really egregious. He just kind of like quit and took off. And, um, it, it didn't end well with the school. There was they, they were very unhappy with the way he dealt with his job. Um, and I wrote him a letter saying, I hope that you do not, um, you know, this is a career for people who are dedicated to children. And um, you knew that Lincoln, were, you know, needed this type of continuity and how important it was for him to have this relationship and what it meant when you weren't there because we had told him you know, time and time again. So I, I wrote him a whole letter saying, I hope you do not continue in this field if this is how you're going to carry out your job. Um, this is, you know, you are dealing with children who need you. And um, I don't remember what else I wrote, but they they gave him the letter. And I felt like maybe this kid thought, you know, and he was very, he was young. He was in his early 20s, um, but I did not want this kid working in the field <laughs> with wow. children with disabilities. And I wrote him that letter and, um, you know, it might have done nothing, but it might have, there was my little, you know, I felt a need to, to, to do that for the, for the greater good, for the greater population. Um, and they said that they would never hire him back at the school because of his, his history in, as, as a paraprofessional. 
So those, you know, I haven't had too many negative experiences, but um, they're very traumatic when they do happen because you can't help but feel like it's an abandonment um, in some way of your child if they're not taking it seriously. And it's very hard to, you know, we're in that position a lot. People who have um, children who cannot be independent are for the rest of their lives, they're going to be in positions where their caretakers, their helpers typically are not paid well. And there, there's a lot of transition. And, you know, of all people in the population, our kids, you know, are extra vulnerable, oftentimes emotionally and physically. And it is painful to have to go through so many transitions and it's hard, um, it's most hard on the children um, who can't understand that they're leaving because the pay isn't great, because, you know, this is an extra job for them. Um, it's hard not to, to, to have it affect the children because these are relationships, you know, no matter what kind of a role they're playing, they are spending time with your children and your children have some form of some kind of attachment to them. So to have them leave, and oftentimes it's a very um, uh, brusque, brusque, brisk, what's the word? Uh, uh, it's a, they, they leave without notice. Yes. Um, and um, that's really painful. Never get to get to say goodbye. They might have gotten fired. They might have just taken off. And it is hard. And we're, we are often in a position where we have to explain to our child why this respite worker, you know, had to move on. They had to finish, they finished college, so they were done. Well, didn't didn't she want to continue seeing me after college? And to have to explain, you know, they're busy, they have, it's really tough. It's really tough. They get attached. Yeah. So, so it's something that you didn't mention, Iris, that I know that you do is you ask for a commitment of at least, you know, a certain amount of time so that at least they feel a little bit of pressure to stay Um you know, we, sometimes there are situations that require them, they have to leave, but to really try to get people who are going to commit to a certain amount of time. So you're not constantly having to transition to a new person. Yes. And uh, that uh, brings uh, to mind another uh, thing. I think uh, you you touched about uh, the fact that when a uh, a family has the budget and the ability to pay, they can pay as much as they want. And then uh, obviously it's easier to retain people long-term because the, the pay is excellent. But if a family is dependent on pay from a state or an agency, this is the field that is most uh, undercompensated in the United States. And this is like raw statistics from like very recently. It's a lecture I listened to like two days ago. So uh, in the United States, 80% of um, the AIDS for people with disabilities are women and 60% of them are women of color. So it's kind of a, 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 a segment of the population that is being anyway undercompensated but uh, specifically for this job and all that it entails it's it's 
a tragedy. It's just yeah. uh, infuriating. It's very hard work. This is it's hard very work. Very hard work. It requires a, a person not just to do the physical, mechanical things of it, but to really be there emotionally and uh, psychologically for the child and their family. And that's very, very hard. And mm -hmm. I, I always say that the things when we have good aids, the things that they bring to the table, the things that they do for Karen, the achievements that she uh, gets or gains from being with them is something that I can't compensate even if I pay them with gold. It's like there, there is no monetary value to their mm -hmm. contribution, but it is uh, extremely, extremely uh, hard to think about how undercompensated people in this field are. And mm -hmm. this is why when I hire people, I try to hire people that has have a different motivation than money to work in this line of work. Many times uh, the people that I hire are uh, young professionals or students that are studying in a relevant field. They are there because they need the hands-on experience. They are there because they want to gain something that would help them through their schoolwork. They sometimes need the hours to kind of uh, qualify for their internship. And mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a population that can see the value in, in the experience beyond, beyond the pay. Mm -hmm. And it's another way or strategy for our family to find people that are... Uh, very uh, qualified and cognitively mm -hmm. well that uh, are in this field because um, they find the value um, the value in the experience for for us because Karen has so much uh, durable medical equipment that is extremely expensive and also dangerous to manipulate. If I want to allow her to go out and about with an aid, I need to know that the aid would be not all, uh, only able to keep the child safe, the service dog safe, and keep yeah. the equipment kind it's of working, that she would know what to do in case in case of emergency. And um, it, it's, it's a complicated job, and you need to have highly qualified individuals. And usually highly qualified individuals would be in different careers rather than, uh, you know, um, home health aids for kids with disabilities. So um, that was our bridge to finding uh, people that are very capable but would still be interested in this uh, line of work. And uh, a couple of things that you mentioned that are, I think are very important is to always ask the person, why are they here? Why are they interested mm -hmm. in this position? Mm -hmm. And in addition to what you said about, um, you know, <laughs> asking them if how, how long uh, they, are, they, uh, they can commit to is also to ask them about their uh, two-year plan, three-year plan, five-year plan. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I always find that I get the true story about their plan <laughs> and how our, our expectation of them being here for two, three years is unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes also young people uh, maybe want to commit, but they <laughs> find it, uh, bless you, they find Thank it um, hard to kind of connect the dots. If you're transferring yes. to a different university in a year, you can't be here for two years, mind you. So, yeah. so so it's it's very important to to have the conversation i sometimes i have my husband join me for those interviews so we have two pairs of eyes kind of and and two pairs of uh, brains thinking about the right question to kind of <laughs> like really um align expectations yeah. and it is uh, very important i think that uh, it's also a, a smart thing to do to tell someone that uh, the first uh, couple of weeks, months are a trial period. 
Yes. And then, uh, and and then they know that it's like it's still not uh, something that is very firm. And later on, to kind of commit to something more, as time goes by. At the end of the day, again, sorry. <laughs> in conclusion, <laughs> I'm thinking of we're thinking of. of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I I think that. Uh, some some of the people that we crossed paths with because of Karen and because of her uh, care needs are just incredible individuals that I would never had the pleasure to spend so much time with mm-hmm. uh, younger professionals that I know are onto like bright uh, futures and uh, extreme uh, extreme uh, su- extremely successful careers. And it's a privilege and an honor for our family to have them to 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 have them spend some time with us because I know that they are so highly qualified and they'll do so much good later on in their lives. And uh, I, I try to also focus on, on that and those people, especially when we get uh, burnt by by others and that the hiring is not successful. Uh, for example, we had a period of time that uh, because Karen was becoming a teenager and wanted to get more involved, that she would sit in for the interviews with us and ask people questions. Mm-hmm. But then many times we had a situation that she really wanted to hire someone mm-hmm. and that person didn't want to take the job after wow. the interview. And then she would get extremely insulted because yeah. it was like going sure. on a date with someone and being rejected. Sure. And that became really complicated. And unfortunately, as much as I want to train her to be independent and take as much control over her life circumstances i had to go in and to kind of buffer this hair from this experience because it was really painful and hurtful yeah absolutely and um you know that's that's a big part of this it's it's a form of rejection it really is that's it's hard not to feel upset when you've you've personally committed to someone you know you've allowed them into your world into your your life, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly that they see, and then they, they don't want it, you know, and it's, you know, it's hard to go through that over and over and over again. Um, before we close, I just wanted to add one more thing about, um, you know, we've talked in other episodes about, you know, how to find your people, where to meet people, so you can learn about resources. A great way to find people to hire is from your community. And asking your local colleges to um, post in these classes where the stu- where whatever they're learning is relevant to the job. So for example, special education, you know, nursing, um, you know, psychiatry, all of these different fields, phys-, phys ed, you know, for a kid who is studying to be a gym teacher, it might be great for a boy who needs, or a girl who needs to, you know, run a lot and do these energetic things. These are all, um, places where we can we'll we'll get we'll get the the context that we really need or we'll have people who have already you know hired these people but they don't need them anymore or they don't fit into their schedule and then you can take them so talk to your community go again go on social media for your on facebook for people in your area go to your local schools and, and colleges and doctor's offices, ask the doctors if they know, and then the nurses if they know of anyone who, you know, anyone related to these fields um, could be a, could be a great, a great resource. Alma, uh, yes. thank you very much for those tips and for another thank interesting you. conversation. Obviously, uh, we will have uh, 
people involved in our lives for uh, the longevity on of our children's yeah. life because mm-hmm. we are always dependent on others help and uh, it's uh, maybe an extension of finding your people <laughs> episode about finding yeah. your friends and support system emotionally it's finding the physical help of having mm-hmm. the aids there to to really support uh, our kids development and uh, well-being on a daily basis yeah so thank you Thank you. And we'll continue this discussion because there's a lot more. There's a lot more to say. All right. The phone's ringing again. It's my son's school. So we'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.